Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 21. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 21. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. We're here to talk about another chapter of Not a Fan by Kyle Edelman. Today finds us in chapter 8, titled Anyone, an Open Invitation. And Greg, the invitation goes to you to start the discussion. I want to start the discussion on the first page of the chapter, the first paragraph. Okay. We're on page 115. And um, I'll read a, a couple lines out of that first paragraph so you know where he's going. He begins the first line. The journey from fan to follower begins by identifying the fan within us. And skipping the line. Inevitably, Jesus would put, put them, put the people who encounter him, in a position where they would have to define the relationship with him. And then we skip down a little bit to the middle part, and the, all the way through from the middle to the end of that paragraph. It's not that fans don't want a relationship with Jesus. It's that they want the relationship with him on their terms. The real question we must ask is this. What kind of relationship does Jesus want to have with us? That's what matters. What are his terms? What would he say it really means to follow him? The issue I have, I, I, have, a, I have a pretty big issue with this. And, and then we can maybe talk about... How how I think we should do it, or he should do it differently. Sounds um, good. The issue I have with this is that trying to ask, you know, putting things on our terms. So I think the the issue is solely on our terms. No, that doesn't work. Does, does any relationship in your life work solely on your terms? Like try that with your spouse. Try that with your kids. That's not going to work. We all, we, we all know that, right? And so, yes, that is a problem. But the idea here, what Kyle is saying, is the real question we must ask is this. What kind of relationship does Jesus want to have with us? That's what matters. What are his terms? Well, yeah, that matters. And my terms matter too. I'm part of this relationship. I'm not subsumed. And this is going back to some of the comments that Kyle made uh, a couple chapters ago about the Holy Spirit. I think this was chapter 6, and he's talking about, um, oh, gee. So that was, yeah, page 95, when he said, The only way to be filled with the Spirit is to empty myself of me. When the Holy Spirit moves in and takes up residence, you should increasingly find there isn't much room for you. And it's this whole idea that you're not important. God loves you. God loves you like crazy. God loves you so much that God died for you. But really, you know, when it comes down to it, and you kind of get Jesus, quote-unquote, you got to get out of the way because you're you're a bit of a problem, man. This is so contradictory, and and it's it's not supposed to be contradictory. Well, I wonder it's, if it, I wonder if there's part of what I wonder. We talked about this a few times before earlier. I think the notion of God being divine and the mm-hmm. sovereign, mm-hmm. and then also being in relationship with us, and I I wonder if when I think of a sovereign. Like, I think of a king in olden times. Like, you didn't have a relationship with that king on your terms. It was all on the king's terms. Right. So I I wonder if that's... And, and I I don't know. I think, I think maybe we're, we're kind of like... We approach it in a split way. On the one hand, it's like, yeah... Or this is the way I've heard it described. You know, Jesus wants to have a relationship with you, and you have a relationship with him. It's another relationship. It's a two-way street. And so you're you're almost equals. You're meeting on a level playing field, but yet it's not a level playing field because Jesus is really God, and so you basically have to do whatever He wants. I, you know, and I, I really like what you said there about about the the sovereign idea. And and in my view, I think what I mean that that's probably what a lot of what's going on is that the whole idea of God as sovereign is primary, yet it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be this dual. I mean, God is both presented, certainly in the Old Testament, as sovereign, but in the New Testament, we have, we've got this this kind of very new approach to God. That's not just Jesus as the Son of God approaching God, 
But when Jesus, when the disciples say, hey, teach us how to pray, and we only have one example of this, and, and you know, we gloss over those first words, those first words are pivotal. They're, they're earth-shakingly new and different in that time period for those people. Our Father, God is Father. And in that type of relationship, sure, there's also inequality, but there's a tremendous reciprocity because that relationship is at base a love relationship. And I think this is what I'm what I'm getting at. That that yes, Jesus loves me. And yes, Jesus has, you know, God has a a far better idea of who I am than I do. God loves me more truly and deeply than I love myself. Um, but this doesn't mean that it's all about what God wants. In fact, part of what God wants is that I desire God. And that's an authentic thing. It's not some puppeteering move that God does, pulling strings in my heart, so I have this affection. That affection comes in the same way that it comes in other relationships. Relationships with my parents, with my siblings, with my friends, with my spouse, with my children. And I think this is where I find Kyle's approach to be really mixed up. And I really regret this when I read it. I, I, I think that there's a whole lot that's missing. And the whole part of... You know, what is the significance of this relationship for me? Jesus loves me. This is what Jesus' terms are. And, and the, the question I think that Kyle's missing in here is, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? Because we're not supposed to be just doing this out of duty. Duty is not the characteristic trait of a believer in the new covenant. And I've gone back to Jeremiah, I think, 31, 33, a number of times. And that verse is, is pivotal. It's it's intrinsic to it's God characterizing what the new covenant is like. Thirty one thirty three. But it, but this is the covenant that I will make. Thirty one thirty three. Pardon me. With the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. It's not about duty. It's about the law being in my heart means that it is my deepest desire to do that which is right. As as in I'm in love with someone. And out of that love relationship, I desire to see that love abound. I desire to be in a place where I can foster the flourishing and development of that love, where I can contribute to that relationship in a way that brings me joy and peace and wonder as one who is, who is loved and who loves within that context. And this is, I guess, what I find to be so dreadfully missing in this book. Hmm. So speaking of things that are missing, and, and you were also mentioning connections to things. So what are mm. what is your take on the connection? So you're mentioning essentially the first paragraph, and then he talks about John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him should mm-hmm. will not perish but have everlasting life. And he ties it in to Luke nine twenty three, mm-hmm. which I I don't know. I, I guess I'm kind of curious where Luke uh, nine twenty three is essentially. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Which kind of follows mm-hmm. the earlier themes in the book of this isn't a free ride. God isn't cool, and and you just you're not you're either like totally on board and totally. 100% invested or you're not uh, some of the previous chapters also talked about you know and if you're not fully invested where are you going to end up when you die um, mm-hmm. but the, I guess the question I had was do, do these verses belong together how do you decide when to put verses together and when not to put verses together because my frustration with a lot of evangelical Christianity and a lot of sermons and the reason I can't listen to them right now is that I often feel like they're kind of band-aided together to prove a particular point, the point that the pastor thinks the congregation needs to hear. And now, granted, in both of these passages, Jesus is speaking, but, you know, and maybe I'm pushing things a little too far here, but, you know, if you want to go to Matthew, uh, let's see, what is it? Matthew 27, 3 where it's talking about Judas, mm-hmm. you know. So when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. Mm. 
So Jesus threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Now, I mean, couldn't we just as easily read Mm. verse 3 where he says he has betrayed innocent blood and said, well, if you've betrayed innocent blood, you should go hang yourself because it's in the Bible and that's what Jesus did. Like, like weird. Like, when do you put verses together? When do you not? And does Luke nine twenty three go with John three sixteen? You know, I think that's such a brilliant point, John. I mean, I think there are two ways to put verses together. One is because verse twenty four follows after verse twenty five, so they're right. They literally are together. And then you've got to kind of make sense of them in that way. But the other way is if you're going to use more more distant contexts. And, you know, uh, admittedly, like the Synoptic Gospels, if you're going to compare book A with book B, you're you're going to get some of your closest comparisons in the Synoptic Gospels. So, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, agreed. But, um, you know, part of that is having a sense of what the whole thing is about, like what the whole book is about, each one of these books, and then kind of taking them together. So... Honestly, I think it's pretty tough unless, you know, the other thing that he did, uh, that that Kyle, the author, did is at the top of page 116, he writes, um, in fact, unlike John 3.16, these words of Jesus in Luke 9.23 are recorded in three of the four Gospels. And he's right. In fact, those words more or less are recorded in five different places across the three Gospels. Yeah, and so so I mean those are that's another area. Maybe maybe the first area of taking text together is do verses kind of are they are they kind of side by side or or pretty close to? Are they in the same part of the same chapter or even in the same chapter? And then we would take that whole context together and figure it out. The other is particularly and I think maybe you know there are some other examples in the Old Testament, but nothing is as closely approximates I think in the Bible as the cases where the same verse or the same micro story and in technical terms we call that a pericope the same verse or micro story is shared in and usually in in a somewhat modified way between the different synoptic gospels so it's really interesting i wrote down the five places that these verses occur or this verse occurs and um i I was looking at some of the different some of the differences Um, and then you know the next situation is when you've got book uh, verses from, from very different, from completely different uh, books, uh, and you've got to try to, you know, figure out well h- how do these things go together? And and I think, honestly, I I think he, yeah, I'll just I'll just be frank. I think you need to make an argument. Well, he says he well, and I guess he kind of does that down below. He says he says so. John three sixteen emphasizes believing. Luke nine twenty three focuses on following, and then he says. Those two things must necessarily go together. There is no believing without following. There's no John 3.16 without 9.23. Yeah, so I would say that's his assertion, and I'm not sure I agree with it. Yeah, well, I might say there's a certain logic to what he said, but there's a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about believing, and a lot of them that talk about following. You know, there's that, that whole contradiction. You know, if somebody's not for me, they're against me. If somebody's not against me, they're for me. The, 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 those two opposite assertions or, or, or statements actually are found in the Synoptic Gospels. And they're in slightly different contexts to give them a little bit, you know, they're not just kind of, it's not just a big contradiction. Um, but, but that's another example, right? Those are, those are examples about believing, right? And about following, I guess. Um, so I think he could have used a number of, d- of different verses, and if we would have mixed the verses up, we would have had probably a different flavor than what he's got. And I think, yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I don't think what he's done is, is completely invalid. I don't think that. But I do think that he's chosen, you know, John 3.16, yeah, the, that's a pretty obvious one in the sense that it's really well known. I don't know that it's necessarily the best one to use, though I think it's quite good. But I think Luke 9.23, you know, let's just take a look at the other four instances where that, that shows up. And I can, I mean, I can just read them to you. Uh, uh, Matthew 10.38. So we actually discussed part of this, um, the Matthew 10.38, because it has its parallel in Luke 14.25 to 26, where um, he's talking about, 
And I'll, I'll read the whole thing, and you'll see what I mean. Um, so I'm going to start at 10, Matthew 10, verse 34, and we'll work down to the end of 39. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. So that's that whole, that whole context. Um, I think um, we touched on that from chapter 6 when he's talking about loving God so much that you essentially hate other people. Um, the other one is in Matthew 16, verse 24. Yeah, and I'll just read from 21 down to the end of 26 to give a bit of context. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and said to him, began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any of you want to be my followers, let him deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Or what will you give? Or what will they give in return for their life? So they're a slightly different context, right? And then he's got two in, uh, uh, one in Mark and a different one actually in Luke. Uh, Mark 8, 34. Um, yeah, and this is different again. Um, I'll read from 31 down to, say, 37 or something. Then he began to teach this. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders. Okay, so we're getting into the same situation we had before in, that I just read. The chief priests and the scribes would be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your minds not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with the disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? So that's exactly the same context. And it's interesting. I wonder if we're going to find the same thing in Luke. Because he's quoting Luke 9.23, right? Let's take a look. Yeah, I wonder about that. Luke 9.23. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing. Okay, so Luke 9.21. He, Jesus, sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then he said to them, then he said to them all, so there's no rebuke of Peter in this one. If any want to come, if any want to come, to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? And this goes on a little differently. For those who are ashamed of me and my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But truly I tell you, there are some standing here that will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Interesting. And there's one more in Luke, which is Luke 14, 27. You might just bear mentioning that one, too. Oh, okay. Now, Luke 14, 27 goes back to what we had in Matthew 10, 38, where it's that whole thing about you cannot love your father or mother more than me. Right? So this is kind of priority with God. But the other three all refer to the passion, to Jesus' death. And in two of those situations, you're seeing Peter raising a complaint, saying, hey, hey, no, 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 this is not the way it's supposed to go. Right. And, and this we could probably uh, a couple podcasts ago, we had the discussion about the loaves and people. Maybe this was quite early on. They were really only interested in a free meal, Kyle was saying. And I think the reality there is, as we discussed, that there's there's much more going on. There's a there's a political theme 
that uh, runs through the crowd's um, kind of orientation. They're looking for Jesus to take a political role here and now, to become active as king, to overthrow Roman rule, to reestablish Israel as, as Israel should be. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm not, that's not what's going on here. And I think, I think this is the complaint that Peter's raising. You know, you're, you're not going to go and be killed. You're, you're going to be king. You're, you're the guy that's going to do it all. You're going to make everything happen. You're going to set things right. And Jesus is saying, uh, yes, I am, but your road is the wrong road. So much so that he, you know, has this really strong rebuke of calling him Satan uh, and telling him his, his thinking is completely off. Um, yeah, I, I guess, I guess you know, when I, when I hear this, when I hear Luke 9.27, the one word that comes into my mind is trust. Well, he's basically. He, I, I really think that what Peter and and if you if we, if we look at this last one, at Luke uh, nine twenty three, even the context there is again he's talking to the crowd, and I think it's this idea that Peter is espousing and the crowd espoused earlier when we talked in um, you know the loaves and the, the crowd wanting to pursue Jesus and force him to be king is that the political agenda. Is, is, is a right and a good agenda. I don't think Jesus is ever saying, you know, I really don't care if you're oppressed. That doesn't matter to me. It's no, no biggie for me. You, you're going to have to, you know, you deal with that one. I think what he's saying instead is that is not God's agenda. That is not where the kingdom of God is heading. We are not stopping there. Um, this is much bigger than you can possibly conceive of. And um, you must trust me that this road is a road I have to travel and that this road is ultimately the best road and f is far better than anything you can imagine. And so for me, it's about following. Yeah. But I think it's about trusting within a context where things aren't apparent, you know, and they're also, and this, this, and it's interesting, you know, the, the, the last two, you, the, the first use of this kind of um, take up your cross thing is Matthew ten thirty eight in the context of, you know, you need to love me more than you love these other key people, right? Your identity as a community, and remember, we're talking first uh, century Palestine, where the fam familial unit and the community as a, as a cohesive unit are all important. And Jesus is basically saying, no, no, I am more important than those things. And those who, you know, the, the we talked earlier in Luke how, um, the whole idea of giving up your family was contextualized by this uh, section uh, in Luke. I think it was Luke 8 or 9. Yeah. Luke 8, uh, 19 to 21. Uh, then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But he said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So he's creating these sort of new family groups and he's basically saying, if you're not willing to be part of that, if you're not willing to let that be part of you, and that's in this sort of Matthew 10, 38 and Luke 14, 27, what I, this is what I'm getting out of this. Um, I'm sorry to go on. I'm just kind of, it's all kind of coming together in my head right now. Um, the, this is essential. And, and this, again, is a huge well, matter what's, what's, of trust. The interesting nuance I think I'm seeing in what you're saying is trust. So, so trust versus following when I hear follow, I think of act like like almost physical action. When I hear trust, I hear mental or mm -hmm. emotional assent. And mm -hmm. from what we've read in other sections of this book, I, my sense is I don't know. I my hunch is he wouldn't agree with it if you were to spell it out this clearly. But it it really does feel like kind of almost a works based salvation, like. You can't just believe like you have to be doing stuff. And uh, in one section, I think he was saying, you know, you should really be suffering and, and kind of you can kind of measure the level of your commitment by how much you are suffering, which I don't go along with. Yeah. Um. So is that what mm -hmm. you're getting at? Is it? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say is that that trust component... So it could result in action as well. Yeah, yeah. It's just that I, I guess what, what seems to me to be missing 
in Kyle's presentation here is that on the one hand you believe, and on the other hand, and I yeah, sure belief is belief is 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 really quite crucial. And, but on the other hand, you allow Jesus to define the relationship based on what he wants, and, and you're not part of this. And then what you have to do really is just pick up your cross and do it. And there's a whole lot of willpower. There's a whole lot of me making things happen or me kind of just kind of, quote unquote, getting on the bus. Get on the bus, buddy. That's where you're supposed to be. We're getting, you know, we're, we're, we're the bus is leaving. Get on. Versus become involved with this person in such a way and trust this person to such that, a degree that you want to get on the bus. That you want to get on the bus, and that and that if, through your trusting, right, you're seeing things happen. Now, in these particular cases, these are these are Jesus is saying, "Listen, we are today. In a couple of months, this is going to happen. You got to just trust me between now and then." And you, by the way, you've seen some things that I've done along the way. You've seen people healed. You've seen a, you know, a number of miraculous things. You have a basis for trusting me. Continue in that basis. And don't think that your political agenda is the prime agenda. That is not God's prime agenda. It's, it's, it's included within it, but it does not stop there. And I think that's what's, that's what's missing out of this, out of Kyle's presentation, is that, you know, the disciples have good reason to trust Jesus. They've, they've seen what he can do. I think it would be... But they don't. Well, I don't know, though. You know, we see them fall and we see them make a lot of mistakes. You know, Mark is particularly good at showing how inept the... No, I, well, and I'm not, I'm not saying ultimately they don't believe him, mm. but I think there are a number of situations where they don't completely believe him. No. They don't realize who he is. Mm-hmm. But I like what you're saying. So what, I think what you were saying there was... Is, they had a lot of firsthand experience with Jesus that we don't have today. Well, we may or we may not. It depends really on who the reader is. You know, when I read this, and if I'm invoked, if I take Luke 9.23, if you want to follow me, come after me, deny yourself and take up your cross. If I take that to mean, first and foremost, trust me, Greg. And I look at my life, and I look at the my experiences as best as I understand them, I have a tremendous amount of material on which to base trust in God. So for me personally, if I don't, if I'm not trusting God, I'm, I'm making not just mistakes, I'm acting in some ways immorally, uh, based on my own standards, right? You know, I've got good reason, good enough reason to trust that my car, uh, you know, I know the general state of my vehicle is going to take me to the up to the end of the street. And if I refuse to, to do something fairly important, I don't know, for one of my daughters or something, because I'm afraid of the state of my car, given its state right now, it's like, that. that's not right, Greg. You're making up stories, buddy. That's immoral. Go and help your kid. You're just trying to find a way out of something you don't want to do by lying. Whereas maybe for somebody else, they don't have that context. They don't have enough information about God to go forward in the way that Kyle's proposing and actually trust God. And I guess that comes back to that whole basic distinction that he's trying to make. You got followers or you got fans. Well, some people should be fans. And you know what? The fact that they're a fan rather than nothing at all is a miracle. And maybe not such a bad thing. Well, maybe not such a bad thing or even even more than that. It's like, man, why are you even a fan? I don't even understand what's going on. That's, That's quite impressive. Or maybe, you know, is it impressive? Is it healthy? Talk to me about that. So, so yeah, I guess it depends on who, who the reader is and what their experience of God is. And that trust component, I guess, again, for me, comes back down to, I think what it comes down to for the disciples is, hey, you've seen enough. You've seen enough that, yeah, right now it's really uncomfortable for you to live with the tension that I'm telling you that your highest aspiration, this political thing about me being king of Israel and overthrowing Roman rule, you know what? That ain't going to happen. In fact, that's so ain't going to happen. Get behind me, Satan. The strongest rebuke you can offer, this, he, he gets. But you know what? You're just going to have to trust me. And that's, that's a tough situation for any of us to be in, I think. I really like the way you've laid that out. Thank you. Yeah, was, you know, thanks, thanks too, for the, uh, your patience as I was reading through those, those, those different kind of uses of that idea of 
taking up the cross and denying yourself. It wasn't until I'd read them all, uh, just like this, that they, they kind of clicked in. Okay, we've got these kind of two different scenarios. We've got Christ's passion, and and you know he's pushing back against the popular view of what he should quote unquote should be doing, and we've also got this kind of this thing about you know God is setting up something new in terms of family and the core. Uh, um, I guess, ways that people identify themselves. Back in first century Palestine, family identification was everything. You know, you could access, you, you became who you could be through as, as a, maybe as a priest or whatever. All this stuff has family roots and who you are in the community. And Jesus is again saying, no, 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 trust in this. Trust in this family. This is something new. It's coming about. This is the kingdom of God, and this is the family that God is creating. Trust in this. Put your put your focus here. Yeah, I guess I just see Kyle's as okay. You know what? You got to give up everything. Well, you know, you don't have to give up everything. I, I don't. Do, I don't think that's what these verses are telling us. Well, what's interesting? That's kind of the next kind of moving this along in the chapter. So on page one twenty four, at the bottom of the page, he's actually told. The story, he's, well, I'll back up a page or two, because I thought he made an interesting point on page 121. He's talking about Matthew. He's, he's basically giving the story of Matthew. Uh, well, and then he kind of, he weaves in his own uh, personal example. But I thought this was interesting. He says, anyone hearing this exchange would have been shocked. So when he's, when Jesus is telling Matthew to follow him. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the other disciples would have been offended. A tax collector? <laughs> this is interesting. He's not only a sinner, he sins for a living. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, nice. that was that was cute, but yeah, on the bottom. So on the bottom of one twenty four, the, the kind of the big punchline. It's one sentence. It's a whole paragraph. Anyone can follow, but not without giving up everything. And I wrote, "What is everything, and who gets mm-hmm. to decide?" Because mm-hmm. this one really cooks me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how many times I've heard one Christian say about another Christian. You know, well, they're not sacrificing enough. They've got too many, too much, whatever. And, you know, they're depending on that instead of depending on God. And, and yeah, yeah, that's really, <laughs> this gets me riled up. Because as I think about this, I think, you know what? The only person in the, well, there's only two people in the entire universe that can answer this question. Me and God. Mm-hmm. We're the only people that can define what everything is. Yeah. Like, so people would say, well, John, you have too many computers and you're, you're finding too much of your pleasure in this life and, and it's distracting you from God. And so if you were to give up all your computers, then you would really find that connection with God that you're looking for. To which I would say, well, yeah, you could count the number of computers I have and say, wow, there's too many. But again, what's too many and what's enough? And, and to that, I would say, it might not. It, well, I know it's not computers. It could be something like completely different. It could be uh, the values that I have, or the emphasis that I place on certain ideas, or certain places that I'm hung up. Um, but I just think it's it's just so unhelpful. I've heard this a number of times in evangelical Christianity. I just think it's so unhelpful to say mm-hmm. you have to give it all up, mm-hmm. all of it. Well, what is it? Yeah. Well, all that stuff, you know, you know, you'll know when it's everything. And it's like, I don't know, to me, it takes it back to that other comment you're making about, you know, completely emptying ourselves and, and becoming completely nothing so yeah. that God can complete. It's, I don't know, maybe we're kind of back in a world of extremes. Um, and then I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. And then I had another thought on his definition of grace on the next page. And I was wondering if that made sense to you or if... Yeah, well, let's let's stop on that one because okay. first of all, I thought that was fantastic what you just said. You know, what is everything and who gets to decide? And and I guess honestly, uh, you, you know, here I'll go back even earlier to a point you made about putting verses together. Um, why why do we not have John three sixteen, Luke nine twenty three, and the verse about you know I've come to 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 give life and to give it abundantly. And I'm just looking for where that is now. Um, and I cannot find it. But, I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's another one. And we, we really have to understand that. When you're saying, you know, take up your cross and, and follow me, 
and, and give up your life. I mean, yet Jesus comes to give abundant life. Yeah, we have to put these things together. And we have to, one of the things I, I think we have to do, at least if you're a Christian, and hopefully, you know, if you're reading the, the Bible um, in a generous way, you know, it's, it's not always easy to do that. But reading the Bible in a generous way, um, one of the things we, we want to think of its author or authors is that they're not idiots. It's really hard to work with somebody if you think they're an idiot, right? Like, why are you troubling with them if you think they're an idiot? So, you know, who is going to say, hey, you've got to give up your life and whoever doesn't give up their life, etc. And then I've come to give you abundant life. Like, you know, what are you talking about here, right? That these, these things, in other words, we cannot perceive them as contradictions if we're going to hope to take anything productive or hope to find any value but um, I think, in this. But I think, I think they're... I think some Christians enjoy that irony. <laughs> no, I mean, there, there's a certain pleasure in finding these ironies in the Bible that, mm-hmm. you know, um, that in becoming nothing, you will become something, you know, in completely emptying yourself, you will actually become more full than you've ever been before. And there's this kind of, maybe it's not irony, but yin and yang, or I don't know what the, but there's this, yeah, kind of this sense of awe and, and amazement, and like, oh, look at this! It doesn't make any sense at all, but it actually it's, turns out amazing. You see, yeah, part of that is this kind of uh, is one way of seeing what we might call fideism. Um, one way, fideism is faith for faith's sake. In, in, in there are a number of different ways of seeing fideism, but nevertheless, that is one legitimate way that that you have faith in something for the sake of having faith in it. It doesn't, in other words, its value is in the fact that it doesn't make sense. Whoa, I'm not sure if I follow that. Yeah, well, I don't follow it either. <laughs> I think it's crap. You know, and there are there are some Christian views that either it, uh, support that, accept that notion, or that border so closely to it that, that I, you know, would not find them to be acceptable. I, I would not agree with them at all. You know, we don't. I don't believe in Christianity because it's it's this huge contradiction. It's the best contradiction. No, it's not about it being like. Who wants good contradictions? Like, like let's have stuff that works. That's real. You know, and you can't always touch and grab hold of all of it. You can't taste all of it. You can taste enough of it to say that it's good and not, for example, either a myth or poison. Because who wants either one of those two things? No thanks. Right. So, um, yeah, I hear what you're saying. There's 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 some of that kind of attitude. But for me, this whole notion of giving up everything, this whole, as you said, you know, who, who defines everything and and um, what is it anyways? It has to be contextualized again by other verses like, you know, I've come to bring life and bring it abundantly. And that's the whole point. You're not giving up everything when you encounter when you enter into a love relationship in a certain sense, you lose everything. You lose yourself because you're in love with that other person. You find yourself saying and doing things that, that in other situations would represent vast overcommitment, uh, an inability to prioritize, poor organization. <laughs> you know, all these things that we would think are just like, hey, like, come on, get with the program here, man. Like you're just completely abasing yourself. And, and the reality is, no, I'm in love here. And uh, yeah, I am reacting differently. I am uh, making concessions I would never ordinarily make. I'm seeing things in a positive way. I'm choosing that to see them positively, even though in other contexts, I might actually see that this person is is being manipulative of me or taking advantage of me. So I think this notion of giving up everything really needs to be contextualized um, with other pieces of scripture. And, and, that, and that maybe, too, is, is a fault. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it would get put together with the rich young ruler. I mean, I talk to me about that. Well, that's I think that's a natural place to to reach. You know, Jesus told him he had to sell all his possessions, and um, the assumption is that he didn't, at least in the sermons that I've heard. But you know, it's like, well, yeah, sell everything that you have, and I can't remember how it ends, but isn't that the whole notion there? Well, yeah, it is. Maybe that's not the real, the true meaning of the passage or the story or the parable, but 
that's how it would be used. In other words, that's where people would go. That's where that would be a familiar place in my experience for someone to go next. Right. Okay. I see what you're saying. In terms of connecting verses, which I thought is what you were asking, but maybe you're asking something else. No, no, that, that was what I was asking. And yeah, now I see what you're, where you're going with that. I, I guess I would say that a, um, you know, this is a person identified <laughs> they they have they have huge status like you know there's there aren't a lot of people in um antiquity in first century palestine who had that kind of status so he's got the status he's got the you know you don't have to identify him as a rich ruler he's a ruler he's got to be rich but for some reason they're identifying him as rich as well and one of the things we see in most hebrew narrative is that they're extremely terse and when you find a descriptor in there the descriptor is there for a reason. And so maybe a better way of, of seeing this is he's a ruler. He's rich anyways. He's very rich because we put the word rich in there. We didn't need to put that in there. Everybody understood it already. This is a very rich person who has a lot of, a lot of power and authority. And, and, you know, Jesus is responding to that person in particular. I think to generalize that response to all of us uh, would be a little slippery. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gets to my whole contention about how I feel like the Bible is often used as kind of a big cookbook, and you just mm. kind of <laughs> pick the recipes you like, and you stream together in this big bowl, and then you <laughs> serve it up, and you're just like, this is what God says. It's in the Bible. Yummy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on that, <laughs> serves, serves, yeah, serves an unlimited number of people. Um <laughs> So, okay, so then on page 125, it's important to understand that the grace of God doesn't simply invite us to follow, it teaches us to follow. Now, this struck me as odd, and mm. I wondered if, is he making a point here that I'm not getting, or to me, grace and following, like, grace is grace and following is following, why is, where do we get this idea that there's a third kind, I don't not a third kind, but yeah. Does that sentence make any sense to you? And if it doesn't, that's okay. It, um, I think I see where he's going. You know, well, t- help it, me out because I don't get yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I, I think he's you know he's told the story of his, how his daughter stained the couch with her nail polish and uh, was afraid that uh, her parents wouldn't love her. He's telling the story now here of Matthew, who's a tax collector, whose real name is Levi. So his parents' aspiration, and maybe his family history was of being a priest, and he's gone about as far from that in, uh, you know, first century Hebrew culture as he could, <laughs> being a tax collector. And he's also told the story of the woman who was divorced uh, recently, uh, a recent story. And then this woman has come to his, his church and was overwhelmed to be welcomed because she had been shut out, essentially, of her other church. And I, I think what he's getting at with Grace is he's coming back to this notion um, that he wrote about um, on page 116. And uh, he says, Jesus begins to call, to his follow, to call him with two words, if anyone. And he writes two sentences later, anyone is an all-inclusive word. Anyone means everyone. And I think this idea that the, of grace here is that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter, et cetera. Oh, so that's the grace. The grace yeah. is that anyone's accepted? Yes. That's regardless of your background. Yes. But, but I, oh, it, I think I, of grace as, as pardon for a wrong done. Yeah. You, you see, I think, I think you're hitting on something really, really important here. Um. You know, and, and this is the crazy thing. This is this is what I find evangelicals. I, this is what I see so frequently with evangelicals. He's he's gone so far. Kyle has gone so far as to quote John three sixteen. I'm sure he chose it because it's well known, but it also is very very clear. Everything that happened happened for a reason. In John three sixteen, the reason is love. God so loved the world that God gave His only Son, that whoever believes in that Son would not perish, but have eternal life. Love is the reason this all happened. Love is the catalyst. And so here we come and we hear you, you, you say, hey, you know, Grace, not, sure, not too sure this makes sense. Kyle has even kind of brought in these two ideas, uh, you know, believing. And there's, there's love is, love is like you're believing in God and what God has done. And hopefully you're believing 
for the right reason. You know, you're believing about why God has done it. In other words, that that it is done out of love. I find with evangelicals so often the words grace and other words get kind of put in here. And we this is a very, I think it's a very simple, but I think it's a very, um, very problematic mistake. It's not about grace. It's not about grace. It's what isn't about grace? Uh, why it's okay? Why why Jesus went to go find Matthew? Why the woman was you know found acceptance in in that church? Um, why they you know and it's it's so oh he found daughter. them because he he went and sought them out because he loved them precisely and the their daughter you see this is what so struck me so so strongly it's like on the bottom near the bottom of page one nineteen you know. Um, he finds his daughter up in her room. She's crying. And uh, she looked up at me with her big brown eyes full of tears and asked, Do you still love me? And this is exactly what it's about. And we start using these words. And we, we, I think the problem that we often, I mean, I will come back to this again and again, but it's what I believe, that in evangelicalism, we simply have not got around the idea that God is not only a sovereign whom we owe service. A, a sovereign before whom we are servants. God is our Father, with whom, who loves us, and whom we love, as God's children. We hold both those roles, both in the same way that God holds both those roles. And it's important, I would rewrite this, it's important to understand that the love of God doesn't simply invite us to follow, it teaches us to follow. When I say it that way, it makes perfect sense. Love does teach me because love compels me. I'm drawn by it. Grace, it's like, oh, you've done something nice for me. You've, you've given me a gift. Wow, that's really kind of cool. Thank you so much. But when you love me and when I love you, that's something totally different. It's something much, much more. Could he be well? Could you say though that that loving someone that doesn't deserve it is grace? I mean, I've heard that that's kind of described in the sense of how God loves us. You know, we well, this is how it'd be set up. You know, we we are sinful because of the fall and because of our own decisions, and so in spite of that, God has shown grace towards us and forgiven us. You're still working into that. You see the problem I find with that? Yeah, yeah, I, I could say that, and I guess I would say that, and I do say that when I work under the truth register, when I work under the idea that God is truly sovereign and that my response to God is to offer obedient service as a servant to that sovereign. When I look under the love register and I see God as my father, it totally changes everything. There, there is no, am I offering grace to my kids? No, I'm, I'm, being, my, I'm being their dad. I love them. You know, they totally pissed me off here. I mean, you know, we're going to have some words about this. But it doesn't change that relationship. It cannot change that relationship. It cannot. It can't. It's not possible. It would undo me. And I think, I think, you know, I would go so far as to say this about God. And, 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 and on a theological level, many theologians would be very staunchly against this. There's some very old ideas about God is immutable. God does not, you know, you can't make, you can't, you can't harm God. You can't harm God by making God feel sad or making God feel worried or making God feel, God miss you. Well, no, it's not about that. This is how love works. And God is engaged with us as our father, as our parent. God is engaged with us this way. And yes, it, I think God does suffer tremendous pain. And tremendous loss and tremendous hurt when God sees us making the you know the poor decisions we make and suffering the consequences that God would so much rather not have us suffer um, but I hear what you're saying John I, I just think again it's 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 so remarkably steeped in this what for me is a hierarchy we've placed truth over love we've placed placed sovereignty and sovereignhood over fatherhood and and this is an error. Uh, and so these, you would put them as equal. And they're they're equal, but I think they're they're um, uh, uh, sorry, I'm I'm missing the word. They're in dialogue with each other. So in, in that sense, 
you know, notions of fatherhood can can be kind of at certain times and in certain ways over top of. They can kind of uh, exert an influence and almost a control over notions of sovereignty and notions of, uh, you know, truth. And in the same way, you know, truth and sovereignty can kind of exercise that same sort of uh, influence and sometimes control over notions of love and God as Father. And and it's kind of, uh, the word I'm looking for is dialectic. It's a conversation in tension. It, they're not fixed, right? Mm. They're not they're not either fixed one above the other or fixed unmovably one beside the other. They're they're flexible. It's like a tree in the wind, you know. Different different parts will be in uh, slightly different orientations based on the situation. And and, and I think this is what what in my view is probably the the biggest. Um, Honestly, flaw in evangelical Christianity. We set truth above love, sovereignty above fatherhood. And somehow we're trying to communicate that God loves everybody and that God wants uh, goodness for everybody and that it's not all about rules. Well, the spooky music means only one thing. This episode's over, but another one's on the way. Thanks for listening to Untangling Christianity. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment at our website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 21. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. And if you're looking for just one more way to give feedback on the podcast, we're running a survey. Untanglingchristianity.com slash survey. Music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thank him for his generosity by supporting him at his website. Tune in next week for a new episode.